we can just banter about until we find a natural intro. But uh, James, this is George. George James. Greetings. Sorry, I'm Greetings, fellow pop, human. Screwing my pop filter into place right now. Uh-oh. Well, don't Are, say any plosives. We don't want those I peas will, exploding yes, all over the place. That sounds like a good plan. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, he's all with the jokes. Um, George, can you make sure your input is to the UR12 and that your gain is up a bit? You're pretty quiet. Yeah, yeah my input's right. Uh, let, me, let me mess with my gain. Does that sound any different? James, can you hear him all right? Not really. Sounds like he's in a phone booth on Mars. Okay. Hmm. Might want to fiddle with the TXQ and put the 7 up to 12. Wait, wait, wait. What oh, there now? we go. Yeah, that's it. Much better. I, uh, <laughs> my microphone was backwards. <laughs> <laughs> that, would, that would do it. <laughs> How long have we been at this and you don't know which way the mic's supposed to face? You know, yeah. I, I make a lot of mistakes myself, but I, I, can't, I gotta admit, I don't think I've made that one. Welcome everybody to We Talk About Dead People, a podcast where we usually talk about dead people and sometimes talk about whatever the heck we want to talk about. In this case, we're going to be talking about all kinds of topics. I got a big list. Um, George and I are here with James Corbett of the Corbett Report, and I have to say it's an honor. It's always fun to talk to somebody who I've been listening to for years and finally be able to just say something back to them. It's like, you don't know how long you've been riding around in my earbuds, but it's finally time. It's finally time to face off. So, James, welcome to We Talk About Dead People. Well, thanks for having me, and I'll try to live up to that, but uh, I don't know if it's going to be worth the years and years of anticipation here. I don't know. I, I have to tell you about the first time I encountered one of your pieces. Um, it was the uh, 9-11, a conspiracy theory video. I saw that, and I was just, I was laughing for probably 20 minutes after watching it. And the whole way through, because it's just one jab after another. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear that. It's funny from my perspective to hear that, and I hear that from a lot of people. It's still probably the single most uh, most known video that I've ever done, which is funny because I literally made that sitting there in my pajamas on a Sunday morning as like a kind of one-off little joke that I thought would be a hey, here's a funny little joke as an inside joke for the 9-11 Truth Movement. And I go and post it and like a million views overnight. So <laughs> you never know, apparently. Yeah, you never know. So I guess we'll get the we'll get the boring stuff out of the way first because I'm sure you've answered these questions dozens of times, but I want to give our listeners a little bit of context into who you are. Um, so wh where did you begin with all of this? Um, what what got you into this this sort of research zone? So many decades ago, I was born into this world. No, uh, how far back do we go? That's always the question. So I guess my origin story, as it, as it were, is really um, 2006. Uh, I, long story short, I had been disconnected from the internet for a few years. And when I reconnected, there were all these new platforms coming online, like Google Video, if you can remember that, and YouTube and other such things. And it really changed the way that I thought of and accessed information. I was always politically interested, not particularly political, but I was always interested in history and politics and what have you. And now suddenly, instead of waiting for some television programmer to decide what I was going to see that day, I could basically access anything I wanted and all these documentaries and things at my fingertips. Yay. So that's what I started to do. I started to watch information along those lines and uh, I kept getting these recommendations in the sidebar on the various video platforms for these crazy 9-11 conspiracy theory type videos and I would sometimes roll my eyes, chuckle a little bit and sometimes click on them just to see what kind of craziness um, they were uh, promoting and there was often crazy stuff about flying orbs and what have you um, but there was occasionally a video or two where they there would be some assertion that I thought, well, that cannot be true. I mean, there cannot have been a report uh, in the summer of 2001 that Osama bin Laden had met CIA operatives in a, a hospital in Rawalpindi 
you know, months prior to 9-11, that can't be true. And then I'd look it up and go, well, actually, it is true. It was reported. It was French intelligence made that claim. All right. Okay. That's weird. And I'd go back to thing, uh, business as usual. And enough of those things started to accumulate that I started to act- actively start researching this, this information. And once I did that, it was the proverbial snowball rolling down the hill. And before you knew it, I was suddenly starting to question things like, well, okay, what do, what do we really know about 9-11? And from that point on, it was a, a short process, a relatively short process of uh, several months before I decided, well, you know what? I've got all this information that I'm accumulating here that is so completely counter to everything I have ever been taught or seen or shown that I, I felt like I had to get this information out to people. But I'm here in Japan by the way, as an English teacher at the time. And so I thought, well, I mean, I'm not going to start ranting at people in Japanese, my poor Japanese, um, about <laughs> these subjects. So what do I do? Well, oh, it's the internet age. I'll start a podcast. So this, so 2007, I started The Corporate Report. And it was weird because I'd never in my life contemplated starting a website, podcast. I'd never even thought about that. But I thought it was probably the best and easiest way to get this information out to other people. And maybe I was right. Because I did catch a rising tide of that that trend. And I thought I was late to the party at the time because podcasting had already been around for years at that point. But apparently it was early enough that I was able to amass quite an audience. And so, uh, you know, 16 years later, here we are. Dang. And I thought we were late to the party. <laughs> no, I mean, um, I, I, I didn't know what a podcast was when I like until like three hours before I decided to start one. <laughs> it's like, I've been doing all this reading. Like I, I started a, I took a really good history class. And after I left, um, I took a, a lot of, uh, communication studies courses, I actually earned my master's in communications. And, uh, to see how those dovetail together was so shocking. I was like, people have to know. So I just felt compelled to start everything. You know, um, I'm kind of glad that I didn't know what a podcast was in college because I feel that like accosting random people in the cafeteria just really was a lot more formative for me than if I'd had a sort of impersonal online audience. <laughs> you know, given the censorship trends, that might be the the next uh, iteration of this. I think we'll and go back Aaron, to accosting. Aaron, people. in fact, was one of the people I accosted in the cafeteria. So awesome! There you go. You never know <laughs> who you're. That's how meet. we met. <laughs> but this is this is this is this is so interesting James because it sounds so similar to like why I wanted to start it. I didn't know who I was going to be talking to. I didn't care. I was like people just need to know like the history of the Soviet Union just a little bit to have a little bit of an understanding of where we're living right now. Um so I've got a lot of topics I want to get through and if we run out of time that's that's okay because I feel like we're going to we're going to do a pretty good job anyway. Um I'd kind of like to start with um Fifth generation warfare and how it relates to communications history. Does that sound interesting to you? It certainly does. I'm interested to see how you're going to tie that together particularly, but sure, let's do it. Yeah. So let me just ask you, what is your definition of fifth generation warfare? Yeah. Good question. My definition? Well, I don't know if my definition is particularly relevant, but um, uh, basically for people who don't know, there is a a theory that's been around for a while now of at least four generations of warfare. And so historians and others have have talked about this, the idea of first generation warfare being the the tactics of line and column that they developed in the era of the smoothbore musket, second generation warfare, uh, indirect fire and mass movement, which was developed in the era of the rifled musket and breech loaders, barbed wire, machine gun, you know, World War One and uh, that that era. And then third generation warfare, the tactics of nonlinear movement and maneuver infiltration developed in response to essentially the second generation warfare of World War One. Um, but then there was a uh, a person, uh, a couple of people, William S. Lind and a co- uh, some co-authors uh, writing in the Marine Corps Gazette back in 1989, talking about fourth generation warfare in which the lines between civilians and military become blurred and armies tend to engage in counterinsurgency operations rather than military battles. So then we arrive at at least the prospect for a fifth generation warfare, which for the record, William S. Lind, who coined the fourth generation warfare term, he he doesn't think that this really exists. He, he rejects the concept. But something about um, the idea of the battles of perceptions and information, um, a reduction in military and violence, but an increase in political, economic and technological violence. Um, but I 
in my report on this subject, I deferred to an Al Jazeera article, why not, as just basically the starting point. The basic idea behind the term fifth generation warfare is that in the modern era, wars are not fought by armies or guerrillas, but in the minds of common citizens. And I think that's probably the proper way to frame this. It's the idea of a warfare that isn't about tanks and guns and bombs on the battlefield. It is about a war for perception, information, control of people's minds and behaviors. And uh, in that context, I think we start to see that it isn't necessarily the old style of Army A versus Army B. It's more like governments manipulating and controlling the perceptions of enemy um, populations, certainly, but also even their own population. And that's where I think we really start to see the real full implications of fifth generation warfare. I, I have to say, I totally think that's a great definition. And, you know, you said, you said you were worried it wasn't a good definition. You know, they keep changing the dictionaries anyway, so it doesn't actually, <laughs> I think you're Fair doing enough. Yeah. I think that's a great explanation for what it is. And um, I guess my Next question would be, what would this look like on the ground as a civilian if we're being targeted as citizens? Well, I think we can start to think of the various ways that this plays itself out. And I think if if it is a battle for your mind and your perceptions, then the first and obvious, most obvious level of this is information warfare. Information warfare in terms of um, propaganda, obviously, as I'm, has existed for a very long time, but is becoming more and more refined. But also psychological operations that are being waged by militaries even against their own citizens. And the example that I cite in my report on fifth generation warfare was this crazy, crazy program that the Canadian Armed Forces um, launched a couple of years ago on the Canadian public in which uh, it, it, it's so bizarre, but they sent out letters um, under the guise of uh, the, the provincial government. I can't remember which province it was, uh, Nova Scotia or something, but at any rate, they were warning people of wolves and the potential dangers of wolves. And uh, it was completely made up. There was no wolf threat. But they also started broadcasting wolf sounds to out what? in the out, out, out in the wilderness. Um, and this was eventually uh, uncovered as an information information operations unit that was targeting propaganda against Canadians as, as a way of testing, uh, essentially, or at least that's what they ultimately ended up saying, testing their their ability to manipulate public perception. <laughs> and this was literally a Canadian armed forces operation against Canadians for the sole purpose of, I guess, confusing and, and seeing if they can generate fear of wolves in the population. And that's just, that's just an example of one operation, one specific operation that got revealed and it, it, it was reported on in Canadian media. But uh, I, I think there's probably many other examples that, that are happening right now and have happened in uh, the recent past that, w that are an example of this, this idea of information warfare. But it goes beyond information warfare. I mean, beyond the propaganda and psychological operations and what have you, um, and censorship, which of course is attendant upon that, um, we also get different, different forms of warfare. Neurological warfare, literally targeting people's uh, brains and the way they operate with increasingly creepy technologies that are talked about openly um, by various um, various people like a Dr. James Giordano. Um, people should look up this character and the speeches that he's given to various military um, uh, training uh, seminars and what have you about the use of bizarre technologies, uh, what he calls drugs, bugs, toxins, and devices that can either enhance or disrupt the cognitive functions of their target. And he talks about the ability to create seizures in people and things like this through this um, CNS aggregating neural disruption dust and nanoparticulates that can be injected into and into the, uh, the, the atmosphere and what have you. Just crazy stuff like that. Um, there's biological warfare, which has gotten some note in recent years of bio labs doing their various gain of function experiments and what have you. There's economic warfare, of course, uh, yeah, the, that's, uh, that's kind of the one I was wondering if we could sure. focus in on a little bit, because um, I'd recently learned um, Africa is not my specialty. It's not what I've studied or researched much, but I recently learned about the sort of incredibly messed up economic system that exists between Africa and uh, what are we on? The Fifth Republic now, whatever government of France we're currently on. I think it's the Fifth Republic, where there's this whole host of African countries whose currency is still staked 
to France's economy and who ha- who pay something like 25-30% of their GDP directly to the government of France for the privilege of having their currency staked to them. And like that 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 to me that sounds like war that sounds like the exaction of tribute like that sounds like a form of economic warfare to me perhaps a little bit more um subtle than you know actual colonial armies the lord knows the french actually still have those too but it seems like that economic warfare has really taken an outsized role since about the the 90s towards the end of the decolonial period I I would say so, and that would be one example that we could certainly look at. And I, I, myself as well, I'm, I don't claim to be an expert on Africa-French relations, but I do note that it is interesting that one of the the leaders and cheerleaders of the destruction of Libya um, a decade plus ago, under the pretense of, oh, we're there to help the poor Libyan people, um, which of course was nothing other than propaganda, because as was immediately demonstrated after the successful NATO obliteration of that country and that country's civilian infrastructure, which, oh, by the way, is a war crime, but who's keeping track? Um, of course, Libya descended into utter civil war and chaos, which ended up a few years ago in literal slave markets on the streets of Tripoli. But, nah, who cares? Uh, Libya is yesterday's news. So it was never, but, of course, but about But at least we didn't Libya have that, that mean old General Gaddafi in charge anymore. Like. Oh, absolutely, yes. Well, of course, because he was uh, sodomized with a knife and then left to bleed to death. Um, and mission accomplished, I guess. So we can all turn turn tail and go home. Um but who was who were the cheerleaders and architects behind that? Well, one of the key key ones at the time was uh, Sarkozy, the president of France, who co-signed the uh, the op-ed that the New York Times and others ran at the time, the International Herald Tribune and what have you, um, with uh, Obama and uh, I believe David Cameron, uh, the prime minister of France at that time. Um, they they co-signed an op-ed um, about why Gaddafi had to go and what have you. Well, why why was Sarkozy so interested? Of course, because of Africa, uh, France France's colonial interests in Africa and the threat that Gaddafi had made, or at least the specter of the threat that he had raised in recent years at the time about the creation of an African currency, a gold dinar or something along those lines. He had at least floated that idea. And it seems um, from some of the leaked documents that we got out from from WikiLeaks um, with regards to, I believe, Hillary Clinton and one of her advisors, uh, Sidney Blumenthal, were talking about the, the prospects of a uh, a, a Libyan cur- or an African currency and how this cannot be allowed to happen. So that's that's one blatant example, I think, of how the monetary economic warfare does play itself out. But there are there are many examples of this. And again, I think it's not that's an example of one one nation trying to subdue another nation or another region. Um, but I think it happens internally as well. And from that perspective, it's interesting to see the way that the economy is hampered or 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 expanded um for the at the for the benefit of a very small financial oligarchy um and at, usually at the expense of the average working man or woman and just to go back to canada like you were talking about with your wolves just look at what happened in the aftermath of the whole trucker convoys and everything where you had people whose bank accounts were getting frozen denied access to their assets and stuff like that this this is it. And this is where I, I truly think things are heading if they are allowed to continue on the path that they're on. That was a, that was a warning shot. And we are already starting to see what that really means. So, the, of course, people are now becoming aware of the concept of debanking. And this has reared its head in many ways uh, in recent months. This is not a new idea. Um, this has been around for, at, at the very least, a decade in the American context under the the name Operation Choke Point, which was an Obama-era uh, Department of Justice uh, plan, scheme, essentially, for the uh, the administration at the time to target its political enemies through the banking system. And the way this is done is the Department of Justice can lean on the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, which, of course, insures the deposits of various banks, to lean on the banks that they insure to say, hey, you guys better get rid of this customer or, you know, we might not insure you and you might not get your FDIC um, uh, regulations uh, approved. So the banks started several years ago now, started sending out these letters. Oh, we can't bank with you anymore. You're going to have to remove your funds. And this this made a little bit of news and headlines and 
eventually, the, when it was revealed, they said, oh, don't worry, we won't, we'll stop doing this. But this idea is becoming not only more increasingly um, understood, but more increasingly utilized in various places around the world. And they're starting to talk, uh, of course, in England, we saw what, what happened with Nigel Farage, where they, where he came out and said, I'm being targeted for my political views and they're trying to debank me. And the BBC came out and said, that's not true. They, we talked to the bank and they said, that's not true. And then uh, Farage published the, uh, the internal documents that he'd received from the bank, which showed, oh yeah, it was actually because of his tweets. And now they're starting to encode it just in their regular rules and regulations. Uh, a bank in Australia is starting to encode in its in its own terms of conditions that they could they can debank people based on uh, the perception of risk at attendant upon political views that uh, that uh, that are controversial or something along those lines. This is starting to happen, and I think increasingly this is the world that we're heading into. I find it it beggars belief that this is even how these greasy tactics for keeping people from being a certain way or thinking a certain thing, or I I don't, I don't even know. You could be targeted for almost any reason these days. They could simply perceive that perhaps maybe you might have said something at some point that was against something they might like, and then they can actually almost unperson you entirely. It, it, it is. And we don't have to really speculate about that or think how I think about that. We could literally think about a, a statement like a, a woman is a biological adult human female, which I, I know it's a meme at this point, but a decade ago, you could not have you could not have even explained to someone how that would be a controversial statement. But as today, it might be a reason for debanking you. I'm not sure. I haven't checked what, what's happening uh, today. And it, it, that's regardless of whether or not you agree with that statement or what, whatever you think about the issue. The point is that things that are completely uh, not just uncontroversial, but couldn't even be conceived as being controversial can change within the course of a decade to being hate speech, which could get you debanked. And that should be chilling to absolutely everyone with their head screwed on straight. Yeah. Well, I mean, I remember when, you know, when George and I started college, like feminism was like in full swing and all the, all the girls we knew were either with it or against it. And I just didn't know what to make of it at the time. So I just kind of stayed away if I could, but yeah, imagine, imagine going back, you know, 10 years and telling the females who were going to our school at the time, you're going to have an identity crisis about your gender. <laughs> I mean, they would have slapped us in the face, <laughs> but that's just a sign of how, how fast things are changing. And yeah. to, 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 to approach your challenge of how am I going to con- connect fifth generation warfare with communications history? Let me see if I can pull this off. Um, <laughs> I think the mass media, especially television, was maybe the strongest weapon the bad guys had against us in waging war on our own citizenry, no matter where we are pretty much in the Western world. Um, do you have any thoughts about uh, television and its use against um, ordinary working class people? I certainly do. In fact, uh, I delivered a course on mass media history a couple of years ago that's available uh, online. It's an online course you can download. Um, it's at newworldnextweek.com. That's the store where you can purchase the the course. And in that course, it's a three lecture course, uh, six hours of lecture. And the second lecture in that course is specifically on i if i remember correctly the title of that is tv is a weapon something along those lines so yes i certainly have a lot to say along these lines um we can think of that in the most literal and basic sense in that uh there there has been testing done and i do have the uh, the details of this testing in in my course but there has been testing done on the ability of television to send people uh, into different um, different sorts of brain state. So I know that sounds, uh, it, it sounds science fiction-y, but uh, uh, the testing uh, indicates that uh, people are uh, sent into essentially what is a, a, a type of waking, um, restful state that is equivalent to when you're sort of daydreaming or coming out of a dreaming state um, within seconds of turning on the television. And it puts people into a susceptible state in which they are less likely to be using their their conscious faculties to uh, to discriminate the information that they're they're seeing and uh, experiencing. Um, so there is that that level on which TV is a type of neurological weapon that has been aimed at the public for a long time. And I think that correlates nicely 
Um, a, a couple of decades ago, uh, there was the um, there was the famous book, which whose uh, uh, Bowling Alone um, by Robert Putnam, um, which became an unlikely bestseller because it really is a work of sociology. But uh, he was looking at the various ways and the various metrics by which we can measure the the basically the decrease of social capital in the United States uh, in the latter half of the 20th century. And there were many, many, many different ways that he was looking at this and calculating it, including, of course, the decline of the popularity of bowling leagues and other such things. But there are many ways of measuring the lack of the, the de- dwindling interest in social participation and civic participation in America in the late 20th century. And he offered a number of different potential explanations for this but i i think the one that's most striking is that literally you the 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 part of the graph where the the decline in um civic uh, participation starts to drop off a cliff is exactly in line with the commercial advent of television technology and i don't think that that is merely a coincidence i think there is a direct correlation a direct relation causal relation there um insofar as television certainly did um, destroy a lot of people's social time, time that otherwise would have been spent in social pursuits, and put them in their living room watching the glowing box. And I think this is an important, an incredibly important aspect, a, a truly revolutionary change in social life that has taken place over the past half century that a lot of people haven't really calculated, haven't really thought about the way um, how different life was before this, because yourself and myself and others. Um, below a certain age, grew up completely with uh, in the television world. There's no way that we could imagine what it was like before that. But uh, there are demonstrable ways, as Robert Putnam and others have shown, to show that there was a very, very different type of social and civic life that was taking place pre-television than there is uh, post-television. And I want to back you up on the different brain states uh, from after viewing television. We did studies in my uh, my program uh, where we would basically have people who had been raised in the sticks we would put them in front of movies and see how they reacted. They behaved as if it was real. Uh, there was no measurable difference between how yeah. they were perceiving the, yeah. dif- the the information coming from the screen and the information they'd been receiving in the room before they went in the theater. Right. Um, this is how people are. Let me let me uh, just back back myself up because I I I do realize that people who haven't heard about this before will be skeptical. The the reference that I'm making is to Herbert Krugman who was a, a public opinion researcher. Um, he became a public opinion researcher at G- uh, General Electric in the 1970s. He did his initial research into this in 1969 using a Grass Model 7 polygraph, a Honeywell 7600 computer, and a Cat 400B computer, for those <laughs> keeping track at home, measuring the brain states of, of people exposed to TV. And he uh, was, uh, uh, that's where the original research was done. It was repeated um, many times. And again, in my lecture, I have the references to the uh, the re- repetitions of those experiments. This is not conspiracy theory. This is documentable fact. It's just science. And, you know, for the people who are still into the science thing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I just, I'm like, like you, I, I think uh, as far as communications history and where television pops up, everything changed when that came around and people were already sort of ready for it with radio. Um, but it was also, you know, as you can t- take it all the way back to freaking town criers, why would you doubt what they're screaming at you in the street? If, if you live in a society that you're supposed to be able to trust your government and in this world today, trust is at an all time low. I mean, I don't know, know what it's like where you are, James, but over here, I got people who I never thought would start seeing through this stuff, starting to see through this stuff and say, I don't believe any of it anymore. Yes, I, I, uh, I am obviously given what I do in the circles that I move in. I suppose I don't have a, a, a good sample of this general population to go by, but it does strike me. I have had cause to think over the past 16 years, you know, I wonder if I'd never gone down that particular rabbit hole in 2006 and I hadn't come across that information. I wonder if what I'd be doing today and if I if I would be just going along with the, the propaganda. And for many years, I thought, well, you know, it's possible that maybe it could have happened. But by this point, given the craziness that we've seen, especially over the past few years, the idea that I would not be questioning what is happening and finding alternative explanations for it is fairly inconceivable to me. I, I, I can't see how people would be able to willing. I think at, as, at a certain point, you almost have to willingly shut down and, and stop yourself from questioning the information that you're receiving because, because of things like that Canadian 
armed forces operation and other things that are just bl- blithely admitted. And then people go on with their lives, but without really thinking about the deeper, the deeper issues that are raised by things like that. Oh yeah. Uh, by the way, they they were doing this psychological experiment on the Canadian population. And no, nah, anyway, let's, let's just all go along and, and not think about that. Um, uh, I think at this point, most people, most people who are going to question this are already starting to question the information that they're receiving, which also raises a specter of a certain segment of the population that is, if they have willingly chosen to shut down or shut off any questioning of the, the establishment um, uh, pronouncements, probably never will ultimately cross that line, um, given how far down the, the road we are at, uh, at this point. I refer to those people as battle droids or ant people. They just follow the person in front of them. Um and it may sound a little bit uh, pejorative. That's because it is like I'm not a particularly intelligent person, but and I was never that critical of the people who were you know sending down this messaging. Hell, I wanted to work in movies. I was I was obsessed with Big Glowing Box. Um, but uh, you know, it's like at this point, I'm like you. It's like what is wrong with you? You this is almost intentional. How do you not? Yeah. even have one question you, about you know it. in a way it's worse than that because yeah if the people were just lemmings marching off the cliff and by the way lemmings don't march off the cliff that is propaganda that was created by a disney documentary decades ago and i i do have uh <laughs> something in the archives about that so if you type lemmings into my search bar you will find about that but um anyway you get the idea people I, it's not just that people are lemmings marching off the cliff it's that I, th- I think maybe the better analogy here is Agent Smith in The Matrix, where these are the sort of NPC characters, right, who are going around simply repeating and regurgitating whatever propaganda that they've been programmed with. But at the point at which they sense there is someone who is pushing back against that and threatening The Matrix, as it were, um, they weaponize into Agent Smith and will become the the the, uh, the enforcers of the, the establishment in the system and will be happy to for at the very least to snitch on their neighbor in order to, uh, to get in the good books of the establishment. Um, that in a way is, is much scarier because of course, top down vertical tyranny is always, has always been a factor in human history and has always been something that, um, has had really profound effects on the development of human society. But in a way, the more, thoroughgoing type of tyranny is the horizontal tyranny the one where it's not the uh, the jackbooted thugs of a police state that are coming marching in to to drag you away to the gulag it's your fellow neighbors and citizens and friends who would be more than happy to turn you into the, those authorities i think that's that's really why it's it's actually much worse than people simply blindly marching along i think they are actually in the end can be weaponized as enforcers of the the coming tyranny what do you think of Matthias Desmet and mass formation psychosis? Have you heard of this? I have. I read the book. I interviewed him. Um, I thought it was a, a, a very thought-provoking book in a number of different ways. And I, there were certain points of, that he made that I thought was in profound agreement with and thought was very, very interesting and astute. There are other points that I completely and totally disagree with him about. Um, but overall, uh, yes, I think there is some element of that that has gone on over the past few years. And there's a lot of people in alternative media circles who would like to, who would like to put all of this, every, all the craziness that we see happening, all of the bad, um, direction that we're heading in on, on the global cabal or whatever, however we identify the they, them, those, um, and to essentially use that as a way of taking their all responsibility away from us, from the people, um, because we're just the the playthings that are being propagandized and programmed and and uh, misdirected and what have you. And to a certain extent, yes, I agree. I think there is a controlling oligarchy that that is actually trying to control the human population. But unfortunately, I think the human population, just the average Joe, does play into that. And we have a part to play in this. And I think that is what ju- is gestured to with something like the idea of mass formation, um, the idea that uh, uh, essentially the madness of crowds and once ideas start to take hold, um, they start to direct uh, people, uh, the ideas start to direct and shape and influence the, the course of civilization. And that's, again, that's kind of a weird concept for people who can only think in terms of individuals performing individual acts. But mm-hmm. we are steeped in a sort of greater cultural zeitgeist that does, to a greater or lesser extent, inform our 
our behaviors and even our perceptions of the world and what's going on in it. And we, I think it, it behooves us to interrogate our own perceptions, who we are, what we are experiencing, and the ways that we, the, the options that are at our disposal for complying or not complying with the various diktat, diktats of the would-be rulers. And once we start to think of our own responsibility in all of this, it does put the emphasis in quite a different place. I tend to agree with you. I've, I've found that um, just simply looking up at these, you know, so-called overlords or whatever you want to call them and being like, ah, you're bad. And I have, I would have had a million dollars by now if it weren't for you messing with my noodle, you know, that sort of thing. It's like uh, at a certain point, yes, you do have a responsibility to wake up and start looking into this stuff. And uh, as far as my research goes and my study of history and communications, I've gone from we just need to get good information in front of people so that they learn the right things to we need to understand a system of memetics that will help people learn truth about things, not just, you know, stuff they read in books, because there's a huge difference between being discerning and wise and having a bunch of facts in your head. Right. Very true. Very true. Yes. In fact, this is um, something that I've. Uh, attempted to gesture at uh, several times, including in an editorial that I wrote, and I can't remember the title that I I gave it, but something like the uh, the most powerful weapon or something along those lines, in which I reveal that the most powerful weapon that has ever been invented by humankind is not the the nuke or the the neutron bomb or rod from God or anything of that sort. It is uh, narrative, the ability. Uh, of course, you can you can kill a million people with a with an explosive weapon, but you can control a million people with a good narrative. You can get into their minds and start to manipulate and influence their behaviors and the way that they act in the world. And that can shape entire the course of human history, essentially. And that's why narrative really is the most incredible, powerful weapon that is, I think, being weaponized and used against us. We are given the various narratives that shape our our, our actions, including whatever, I mean, think of it, two weeks to flatten the curve or whatever it is, all of these different um, narratives that are implanted in us that start to shape our, our actions and perceptions. Well, I, I, the obvious, I, I mean, yes, of course, it can be weaponized against us, but then the obvious retort is, well, we can start to use narratives, develop narratives that, that uh, put society on the track towards going in the direction that we want rather than the direction we don't want. I agree completely. George, uh, would you like to chime in? He is probably, Oh, you know, I'm, I'm here. I'm just <laughs> listening, absorbing as is uh, once you get into a lot of the communication theory, I try to take a back seat since that's really your wheelhouse. Um, but I'm just sort of thinking on the, as I tend to do the long historical view that while, like you said, weapons and specific developments can certainly be, you know, game changing in some senses, some improvement in military technology. So often, historically, what allows a big sort of paradigmatic shift in the balance of power isn't a invention on a physical physical level. It's the invention of an idea or a driving narrative that is able to be disseminated among the population and give them something to organize around and that's not even always a bad thing sometimes it's a very good thing when a people receive you know receives a um a vision that they can really give themselves to and follow i mean that's why the roman empire succeeded the way it did is because they had a certain vision yes they were also sort of at the forefront of a lot of pioneering military tactics but they still had those tactics in the late empire when they'd lost the vision and everything was falling apart. Um, and I just, I, I like the way you phrase that, how the most powerful weapons aren't military or technological, but rather they're a narrative that people can adopt and that can be spread easily. And I think that's sort of the hallmark of a successful, uh, I don't want to say psyop because that sounds like it always has to be bad, but a successful reorientation of society is almost always because they found the sort of right combination of circumstance and message that was able to take root and really change the character of the people who are receiving it. That's right. And if people want to understand the historical context of this, the, the paradigmatic example, I would say, uh, early 15th century, uh, Johannes Gutenberg 
inventing the the movable type printing press and putting together a number of technologies. As people say, they tend to try to poo-poo um, Gutenberg's invention by saying, well, you know, all the technologies existed. He just kind of put it together in a different way. But it was nonetheless quite a, uh, a remarkably important invention in human history. In fact, I remember, I remember vividly around the turn of the millennium in 2000, I remember watching some, whatever it was, some CNN, A&D special, whatever it was, um, about the the hundred most important inventions of the twenty of uh, the, the last thousand years, and I remember at the time I was thinking uh, somewhat skeptically. Well, you know, the airplane, the television, yeah, yada yada, whatever. Uh, but what what's going to be number one? What could possibly be number one? It better be something good. And when they got to number one. It was Gutenberg and the movable type printing press. And I thought, you know what? Actually, that's probably right. Because what resulted from that, um, just in terms of pure numbers, um, you went from a Europe in which in all of in the entirety of Europe, you had uh, uh, all of the scribes struggling to produce a few thousand manuscripts over the the previous 50 years um, to Gutenberg. The subsequent 50 years, you had literally millions of books being produced. Um, that That truly was a revolution and it didn't take long for that revolution to manifest in 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 demonstrable um political and social upheaval of a type that was unthinkable before the invent that particular invention for example of course um, many people have talked about the reformation and how that was made possible essentially by the printing press um in a number of ways i mean one thing if one of the goals of the reformation was to get the text of the bible into the hands of the people well of course it was gutenberg and gutenberg's bible that helped to do that um in a very tangible way that helped to create the sort of literacy um that that we see in in today's society um that had of course knock on political effects etc cetera, etc cetera. and in the american political context what was it that truly sparked the revolution as a revolutionary war rather than what most people were thinking of in 1774 1775 they were still thinking of it in terms of a civil war essentially within the british empire we are british subjects that are trying to get our rights as british subjects um what made it into a revolutionary war um by all accounts including george washington's was the publication in 1776 of thomas paine's common sense this pamphlet this political pamphlet, which was enabled by this printing technology, which made Joe Schmo capable of reaching tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in a way that could not have existed before that technology, that truly transformed the American public's perception of what was happening and really, in a sense, launched the Revolutionary War. I mean, th- this is technology, yes, but it has it, it is about the spreading of ideas. And those ideas fundamentally have transformed human society. Um, in ways that are scarcely imaginable. And we are living through Gutenberg 2.0. I really, truly think that the the internet represents as transformational a technology as the movable type printing press represented. And that's exactly why we are seeing such a headlong rush towards censorship of, and, and all of these terms, not only misinformation and disinformation, but malinformation is now being added to that mix. Yes, yes, it's technically true information, but it could be used to undermine faith in the government. Therefore, it's malinformation. Um, <laughs> the, the, I, that, that shows, I think, in a sense, yes, of course, it shows the power of the oligarchy to come in and censor people and, and, and take them off the internet and what have you. But in a sense, it shows the, the power of this technology as an information tool and what I think controllers of all sorts have always feared, which is the people to be aware and to be able to, to talk and communicate and spread ideas among themselves, because that ultimately never really redounds to the benefit of a controlling oligarchy. And that's that's the the incredible time that we are living through right now, truly world historical revolutionary times that are enabled not by some development of some uh, uh, weapons or explosives, but by information technology that is truly transforming human society. I think that's well said, and I tend to agree that we are at a Gutenberg 2.0 situation. I mean. I had to take a job in a warehouse a few years ago. And what were most people listening to either music or podcasts and the podcasts were about, you know, useful things. And they were basically learning things that they didn't learn in school while they were, you know, shifting cases and driving pallet jacks, you know? Um, so that was super encouraging to me that they weren't just wasting their time, like listening to comedy or something. But, uh, 
you know, I want to round this out. I love this. I love this line we've drawn because I'm so in agreement about narrative being a weapon and it not necessarily being a bad thing and that we can use it to our advantage. I think this is a great place to talk a little bit about hopium and what what you would say about that. Well, I would say that this falls largely in the uh, other side of the equation rather than uh, something that we can use, something that can be used against us. And I think it's actually keeping exactly in line with what we're talking about here. Essentially, the uh, the, the growing awareness among would-be um, societal engineers that, yes, of course, information and narrative is a weapon that can be weaponized. So, and and because information is spreading online, well, why don't we use that space? to start spreading information that might be useful in, at the very least, disrupting um, any p- potential uprising against us and, and uh, at any rate, um, stopping uh, people from uniting in, in fruitful ways. So what am I really talking about here is the, uh, the fundamental idea that's been around for quite a long time that uh, essentially in order to, as, as a sort of steam release valve um, in the functioning of the 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 system of oligarchy what you need is for people to believe that there is some there's some sort of nebulous hope out there that is coming in to save the day that will uh make everything right and make everything better and with a wave of the magic wand and the idea here of course again deeply i think deeply rooted in human psychology goes back as far, I think, as we can go in recorded human history. And uh, narratively, it often takes the form of deus ex machina, which, of course, comes from the old Greek tragedies, where when essentially a tragedian didn't quite know what to do with the hero is in this horrible predicament and there's nothing, how on earth is he going to get out of this? Literally, they would have a god from a machine, deus ex machina, literally a god appear on stage, a machine would wheel it, wheel him on stage or lift him down or what have you. And the God would then just magically make the, the hero win. And obviously narratively, it's not really satisfying, is it? I mean, it's, it's, it's the, the rabbit from the hat, the, Oh, you know, okay. now everything's better. But in some way that has that element of narrative has persisted for, for many millennia. So there must be something deeply wedded in the human psyche about that. And I think that takes the form in a political narrative form of the, the great, the great hope that's going to ride in and change everything. And of course, in this, in the modern democratic political context in certainly in the United States, that takes the form of people giving over their identity to the latest presidential savior that's going to swoop in and save everything and make everything better which of of course on its face is nonsense and everyone knows that it is but everyone momentarily forgets that once every four or eight years when the new messiah appears on the political stage to come and save everything and obviously we can turn back to obama and the incredible craziness that uh that attended his election in 2008 um and then Trump, I, I argue, was a similar phenomenon, at least for a certain seg- segment of the population that saw him as the the god from a machine. I, uh, I don't know if there's anything deeper to this, but him descending the golden escalator to announce his his uh, <laughs> presidential uh, uh, race was, you know, uh, quite quite fitting in a number of ways. But anyway, um, uh, so all of this is feeding into what I, I refer to as hopium. Um, which, of course, playing on opium is the idea of injecting yourself with this false hope um, of political saviors who are going to make everything right. And unfortunately, I think in recent years, that's been weaponized even further by taking taking it to the next stage, taking it online into the Internet fora, which were being used um, for people to connect on the basis of uh, of questioning the establishment pronouncements, etc., where these conspiracy theorists are thriving. Well, why don't we put an operation where we go in and start directing these conspiracy theorists in ways that uh, that give them the hope? Don't worry, guys. There's a white hat out there that's working. That's on your team, and it's going to come in and save the day. And this manifests, I think, most obviously in the QAnon phenomenon that we saw in recent years, where trust the plan. <laughs> yeah, trust the plan. Exactly. Literally, the the summarization of. Q is trust the plan, which essentially is, you know, go munch your popcorn, watch the show, enjoy the show was literally one of the the Q drop um, uh, uh, cliches. 
And the, the idea, of course, is to placate people who, who understand there's something deeply wrong. There are bad people in positions of power that are not on our side, that are not, they're engaged in fifth generation warfare against us. What do we do? Enjoy the show. Trust the plan. Sit back. Don't worry. The good guys are in control. And this was used for several years to essentially placate a large section of the population who otherwise would presumably have been interested in actually looking into ways to undermine the system as it exists were placated to don't worry just sit back and enjoy the show and i i did do a an entire report on this called um uh, a brief history of hopium which you can find on my website which i hope people will take a look at it's basically the development of this idea and how it's manifested in recent years and and i like to contrast the hopium with hope, because I don't think there's anything wrong with hope itself. I think that's actually an important part of the human experience and that we do need things that we are positively questing for, a, a, a sort of aspirational hope that we have, that we can transform things. But hope actually motivates people to do things, to actually engage with the world, whereas hopium is trust the plan, enjoy the show, sit back, don't do anything, just wait for something to happen for you. And I think that's the dangerous sort of false narrative that people have been given in recent years. Yep. And I, I would encourage all of our listeners to go and check, check out the Hopium video that James put together. I think it was last year, a couple years ago, maybe a couple years ago at this point. Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a good one. I mean, it's, it's a really good explanation of this. Um, and I think one of the things, and we're gonna have to round this out. So I'm gonna let George get one last shot in, but I, I just, I think one of the, the hopeful things um, that we have is like you said, the Gutenberg 2.0 situation that we're in. I think people are learning, uh, the patterns of how things work so they can detect things like hopium and just, you know, write them off before they get too invested. But, uh, George, we've got about five minutes left. Uh, do you have any questions for James? Uh, yeah. So you talked sort of starting from the beginning, we talked about the different kind of, uh, heads of the Hydra, so to speak. Um, you know, the, of fifth generation warfare with the, the propaganda, the debanking, financial warfare, the gaslighting of people about wolves and all that sort of thing. And so thinking about it like a like a hydro with all these different heads, it really does seem like it works that way. And that even if you can prove the sort of the prove the lie on one of the heads, there are just too many other ones to for it to ever really be a substantial victory. Like at this point in time, like I I can pretty well imagine literally documents coming out being like, oh, yeah, the CIA actually did 9-11 and it really not changing anything because there's just so many other heads of this fifth generation warfare machine being harnessed against the average people. What is what would you say ties it all together? What is the overarching narrative or the overarching monster beneath all these heads that is being unleashed on the average person you know that that is a very perceptive question because i think that gets really to the heart of this issue because i think you're exactly right and in fact this ties into everything we've been talking about because i think that we have been implanted with a certain idea through narratives that we have received in our cultural conditioning and programming since the time we were born um, to, to understand the world in terms of there is a, a dragon, a beast out there, you go and you cut off the head of the dragon and everything is made better. And we, there are no end to the, the various ways in which we have imbibed this idea through our cultural programming. I mean, I always turn back to the idea of like Tron, like the literal head of the master control program and you defeat him and the entire world turns from red to blue or whatever it is and everything's better again. Um, but I think that is a false template that has been implanted in us, which sends people out looking for, okay, let's cut off this head uh, of this enemy. Let's identify the enemy, cut off its head and everything will be better. And I think that fundamentally places the entire um uh, our, our entire perception on the wrong idea and in the wrong place and it directs us towards some sort of big climactic battle that's going to take place and uh which will solve all of our problems whereas in reality it it misdirects us away from the reality that we ourselves are an essential the essential part of the functioning of this system the 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 whatever 
aspect of this that we're looking at, the economy or anything else, depends on our participation, our labor, our investment, literal and metaphorical, our investment of obviously money, but also our investment of time and energy and attention on the things that we are being directed towards. And in that in that controlled environment, they can manipulate the, our, the, the money supply and uh, psychological operations and whatever else. But it, it misdirects us away from the fact that, well, actually, we are, we are free and independent human beings who can choose to interact with each other in various ways. And increasingly, the technology actually exists for us to cut out all of the middlemen that maybe w- was necessary to have an industrial society back in the industrial revolutionary era. You had to have these massive factories that uh, were devoted to pumping out these products that would then be shipped all over the world that would then, you know, you might be passing by a particular display at a particular store and decide that you need that particular item. So you decide to buy it. What a, what a, uh, a ridiculously inefficient system. I understand why it developed and how it did, but it doesn't have to be that way. And we could certainly imagine certainly with the technologies that are increasingly becoming available to us, um, the peer to peer economy that is developing through the internet technologies, the 3d printing technologies and others that we could have the equivalent of an industrial society without the sort of industrial corporate middlemen. We could actually start reimagining society as a peer to peer voluntary human interaction um, chain rather than through this this gigantic corporate governmental structure that has been erected um, that is increasingly taking control of everything. Um, and I think that's what ultimately I think that's what they, the the, uh, the would be controllers definitely do not want people thinking about or orienting themselves towards because once they start to withdraw their participation, their their money, their time, their attention, their energy from that controlled space of the controlled economy and controlled human interaction towards something more free and independent. Well, game over for the would-be controllers. You cannot control a society of people who are freely interacting with each other. You can control the establishment institutions that come along as middlemen seeking to put themselves in the middle of every human transaction and interaction. So I think we have been given this false template, ultimately, of trying to cut off the head of the enemy rather than simply walking away from the master's table begging for scraps and starting our own table and starting our own picnic, to use that analogy. And I think that's the way that we that's the type of narrative that we need to implant in the population in order to truly change the direction that society's heading in. Well, um, we're out of time. But my God, that was, that was an amazing hour. (laughs) Um, man, you just, you're just truly a wealth of, of information and good thoughts. And I appreciate your attitude about the situation that we find ourselves in. Um, of course you're always welcome back. I'm going to give you this last minute or two to plug your stuff and tell people where they should go. Um, Can, can I actually hop in for one more second? Um, sure. Just to sort sort of to, uh, to respond to what James just said, you know, you know what that actually made me think of it. Aaron, Aaron's going to love this. Um, it made me think of the end of 12 angry men when sort of one by one, the people just kind of turn away from that last juror who's going on his angry rant and just decide, you know, we don't, we don't really need this guy anymore. Yeah. That's my favorite scene in the whole movie. <laughs> yeah. That's, I feel like that's kind of what ultimately James is sort of suggesting that people need to do is to just, just walk away and just not try to cut the head off the dragon because there's a hundred more heads. You've just got to kind of leave the dragon to its own dragonish devices. This For is sure. it. I think what we are facing is not a a person or even a group. It is an ideology. It is a mindset. And a, you don't defeat a mindset by cutting off the head of some person or dragon. Um, you defeat the mindset by offering a better vision of the future and making that happen. So I think that's our task. I think that's a great attitude. Now, James, you got to tell people where they can find your stuff. <laughs> CorbettReport.com, C-O-R-B-E-T-T Report.com is the one-stop shop for all of my information. Um, that's 16 years of archives now, um, so thousands and thousands of hours of audio, video, media, 100% completely for free. I do have a subscriber newsletter that has a subscriber editorial, but even the editorial is completely free. I always post the free version of the editorial to uh, my substack, CorbettReport.substack.com, so... Um, there's many ways to access my work on many platforms, but corporatereport.com is the best way to do it. That's what I've found as well. That is the main hub where you can find all the good stuff, the juicy stuff. Um, 
George, you just unmuted. Do you have something you want to say? Nope. Nope. Just. I think, I think we should say thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, James, man. This was, this has been great. You're welcome. I hope we can do it again. Yeah. I hope so too. Um, yeah, no, thank, thank you very much. Yeah. This was very, very enjoyable. I'm, I'm slowly getting acclimated to the, the communication theory conversations. (laughs) You are getting better. I will say that you're getting better. (laughs) (laughs) All right, James, you have something you'd like to say to the world before you go? Uh, no, now I'm just curious what George's forte is and maybe we can talk about that next time, but uh, I guess we'll leave well, it here for today. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you, give you the CB. I am a historian and philologist. So I study human language. Awesome. Yeah, I am. I am very intrigued. So we'll have a lot to talk about with regard to that. Yeah. So yeah, between me and Aaron, Aaron talks about communication on the big scale. I talk about communication on the little scale. Yeah. Yeah. Well, nice, nice compliment. Yeah. Well, each other. Now, instead of us just circling and saying goodbye over and over again, I'm just going to actually close it out. <laughs> but uh, let's do this again, guys. Like, I felt like we did. I felt like this was some good, some great conversation. Good. Yeah. I'm happy to do it whenever you are. On the morning of September 11th, 2001, 19 men armed with box cutters directed by a man on dialysis in a cave fortress halfway around the world using a satellite phone and a laptop directed the most sophisticated penetration of the most heavily defended airspace in the world. Overpowering the passengers and the military combat trained pilots on four commercial aircraft before flying those planes wildly off course for over an hour without being molested by a single fighter interceptor. These 19 hijackers, devout religious fundamentalists who like to drink alcohol, snort cocaine, and live with pink-haired strippers, managed to knock down three buildings with two planes in New York. While in Washington, a pilot who couldn't handle a single-engine Cessna was able to fly a 757 in an 8,000-foot descending 270-degree corkscrew turn to come exactly level with the ground, hitting the Pentagon in the Budget Analyst Office where DoD staffers were working on the mystery of the $2.3 trillion that Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld had announced missing from the Pentagon's coffers in a press conference the day before, on September 10th. 2001. Luckily, the news anchors knew who did it within minutes. Osama bin Laden. The pundits knew within hours. Osama bin Laden. The administration knew within the day. Terrorists who committed these acts and those who harbored them. And the evidence literally fell into the FBI's lap. That a hijacker's passport was found blocks from the World Trade Center crash site, if you can believe that. But for some reason, a bunch of crazy conspiracy theorists demanded an investigation into the greatest attack on American soil in history. That investigation was delayed, underfunded, set up to fail, a conflict of interest, and a cover-up from start to finish. It was based on testimony extracted through torture, the records of which were destroyed. It failed to mention the existence of WTC-7, Able Danger, P-Tech, Sibel Edmonds, OBL and the CIA, and the drills of hijacked aircraft being flown into buildings that were being simulated at the precise same time that those events were actually happening. It was lied to by the Pentagon, the CIA, the Bush administration, and as for Bush and Cheney, well, no one knows what they told it because they testified in secret, off the record, not under oath, and behind closed doors. It didn't bother to look at who funded the attacks because that question is ultimately of little practical significance. Still, the 9-11 Commission did brilliantly answering all of the questions the public had, except most of the victim's family members' questions, and pinned blame on all the people responsible, although no one so much as lost their job, determining the attacks were Failure of imagination. Because Nobody in our government, at least, and I don't think the prior government that could envision flying airplanes into buildings. Except the Pentagon, FEMA, NORAD, and the NRO. The DIA destroyed 2.5 terabytes of data on able danger, but that's okay because it probably wasn't important. The SEC destroyed their records on the investigation into the insider trading before the attacks, but that's okay because destroying the records of the largest investigation in SEC history is just part of routine record keeping. NIST has classified the data that they used for their model of WTC-7's collapse, but that's okay because knowing how they made their model of the collapse would jeopardize public safety. The FBI has argued that all material related to their investigation of 9-11 should be kept secret from the public, but that's okay because the FBI probably has nothing to hide. This man never existed nor is anything he had to say worthy of your attention, and if you say otherwise, you are a paranoid conspiracy theorist and deserve to be shunned by all of humanity. Likewise him, 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 and her. And her, and her, and him. Osama bin Laden lived in a cave fortress in the hills of Afghanistan, but somehow got away. Then he was hiding out in Tora Bora, but somehow got away. 
Then he lived in Abbottabad for years, taunting the most comprehensive intelligence dragnet employing the most sophisticated technology in the history of the world for a decade, releasing video after video with complete impunity and getting younger and younger as he did so, before finally being found in a daring SEAL team raid which wasn't recorded on video, in which he didn't resist or use his wife as a human shield, and in which these crack special forces operatives panicked and killed this unarmed man, supposedly the best source of intelligence about those dastardly terrorists on the entire planet. Then they dumped his body in the ocean before telling anyone about it. Then a couple dozen of that team's members died in a helicopter crash in Afghanistan. This is the story of 9-11, brought to you by the media which told you the hard truths about His head could be seen to move violently forward. And They took the babies out of incubators. And Mobile production facilities. And The rescue of Jessica Lynch. If you have any questions about this story, you are a batshit, paranoid, tinfoil, dog-abusing baby hater and will be reviled by everyone. If you love your country and or freedom, happiness, rainbows, rock and roll, puppy dogs, apple pie, and your grandma, you will never ever express doubts about any part of this story to anyone. Ever. Because ignorance is strength. <laughs> <laughs>